Explaining our current theories about the universe is not an easy matter. The gravitational effects of dark matter or, or the complexities of the multiverse theory are hard enough to get your head around on a good day. But imagine trying to explain these ideas if you were limited to just 1,000 of the most commonly used words in the English language. Could you explain these concepts with so few words? Cosmologist Dr. Roberto Trotter has attempted to do exactly that in his book called The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is. In our conversation today, we talk about the challenges of writing this book, and we also touch on the wider issue of the gobbledygook of much of academic writing. Roberto, yeah, thanks for taking out uh, some time to have a chat with me today. My pleasure. Great to be here. Look, you've you've written a really uh, unique book, and so I guess at the top here, can you can you just in a nutshell describe your book for us? Well, it is true that The Edge of the Sky is unlike any other science book you might have uh, read before or are likely to ever read. It's it's a book about the universe and everything we know about the universe from the Big Bang to today's mysteries of dark matter, dark energy, the destiny and fate of our universe. But it's written using only the most common thousand words in English. And universe is not one of them. And so it's a book that talks about the universe uh, by using the word all there is instead of universe, because I can't use universe, and by uh, trying to use very simple language and get rid of all the jargon so that everybody can understand what those interesting questions about the fundamental nature of the universe are about. About these thousand words, where did you get your list of the, the thousand most common words from? The story goes back to an XKCD comic. Uh, XKCD is this website which is hugely popular among certain quarters. Um, It's about comics and cartoons, which are often of a very geeky nature. It deals with IT, computers, and physics. And so XKCD creator Randall Monroe had the idea of using the thousand most common words to label a drawing he had made of the Saturn V moon rocket, which was called the Upgoer V because it couldn't be called the moon rocket because obviously, you know, moon and rocket were not uh, in the list of the thousand words that he used. So when I saw this idea, I thought it could be a good inspiration to write a book in the same format. And so I used the same words that he used. And those words turned out to be from a Wikipedia list which uh, claims to have compiled this list from the from about 10 million works of contemporary fiction. And so it's, it's not a very high academic pedigree in terms of where the words come from. And in fact, when the project, my project was concluded, I did go back and then ask myself, you know, are those the most common thousand words uh, or should I use a different list, etc. But at the end of the day, I, I wasn't too bothered about where exactly the words came from because all I was interested in was saying, if, we, if you take such a very a Spartan language and very pared down list of words, what kind of narrative can emerge? How can you talk about the universe using any arbitrary list of simple words? Those thousand words were perfect for the purpose, I think. You uh, you are a theoretical cosmologist, and uh, so, so you're deeply embedded in the language of, of your discipline. To have to then pare that down and only use a certain amount of words, one of which is not the word universe, <laughs> uh, that must have been a hell of a challenge. 
it was a challenge. It was a real challenge. And for the first few weeks, I was really banging my head against these self-imposed limitations of the language that I'd given myself. And more than once, I was on the verge of giving up precisely because I didn't have all the words I wanted to use. I didn't have galaxy, telescope, big bang, particle, energy, you name it. All of those words are not in the book. So how, how do I write about all the things without using those words? But then the interesting thing was that after a while, uh, something new started to emerge, a new format started to emerge from the uh, limited lexicon itself. And so once I started, as it were, translating those words into simpler words, so for example, instead of telescope, I use big seer, or instead of galaxy, I use star crowd, instead of planet, I use a crazy star, and so on. When I started having a new vocabulary at my disposal, then things started to become simpler, and a new language emerged from the format, and the language that I hope will be a more poetic take, if you like, on those very abstract concepts, and which I hope will bring them to life for my readers. The coloured lights in front of the student woman flash quietly on and off. Big Seer goes about his job in silence. Nothing breaks the perfect calm of the dark night. It will take at least another two hours before Big Seer has finished. This is because Big Seer is looking at a faraway star crowd from which very little light reaches us. When the light set off on its long trip to us, our homeworld had not been put together yet. That's how long it took for the light to get here, even though light can go round our homeworld seven times in one second. What was your process in terms of writing this? I mean, how do you technically go about writing this book? You have a, a list of thousand words sitting next to you and you're like, yes, no, can say that, can't say that. So technically, I, I had I had a program that I'd written that would allow me only to use the thousand words that I that I that I had at my disposal. So I had a, a, a code that would do that for me. And so it would tell me when the uh, when I was using a word that was not on the list. So that was very handy. But also uh, in, terms of, in terms of writing, in terms of how I approached it as a writer, uh, at the beginning, I did approach it a little bit as a translational challenge, but it wasn't, it wasn't the right approach. The right way of doing it was actually to uh, use this new format as if it were a new language by and for itself. And when I made that click, when I made that uh, change of, of mindset, then that's when I really got the hang of it and I could really use it uh, in, in a most effective way, I think. Um, it was, uh, there were occasionally when I was reading the book, uh, there were a couple of words that you used that kind of surprised me that they were part of these thousand words. For example, the word chuckle. Yes, that's right. Uh, some words are in the list that you wouldn't expect are, are would be there. Uh, chuckle is a good example. And other words that you would definitely expect to find on the list are not on the list. For example, energy or, or, or speed even. And so, again, this goes back to the question of whether the list I use is the right list. And in a sense, um, you know, it really depends on what kind of source you use, depending on what kind of uh, source works you use to compile the list from, you will end up with slightly different lists and different choices of words 
But uh, at, at the end of the day, the point that I that was important to me was not very much what kind of words were on the list, but the fact that all of those words are simple words and are words that everybody can arguably understand. And so using very simple language, languages free from jargon, uh, are we able to explain those very difficult concepts about cosmology and the universe in a way that is accessible to everybody and also to people who would not necessarily pick up a popular science book about the universe because they might be intimidated by approaching such a big subject uh, in, in a more traditional way. And so I hope that my work helps in widening the appeal of cosmology and reaching out to an audience uh, of people who are perhaps literary-minded or otherwise artistically inclined and who are interested in the subject but need a little bit of a of an entry point and a way to look at it that's a little bit unconventional. Yeah, this does kind of lead us into this bigger, uh, I guess, ongoing discussion about academic writing. And I mean, what what caused you to write this book? Did it have anything to do with the uh, sometimes overly complex nature of academic writing? Definitely. I think to me, it's very important to be able to communicate to the public at large and, and talk about science in a way that people can feel uh, engaged in, in these kind of questions. And certainly academic writing for specialists, by specialists, is plagued by jargon and all sorts of uh, very complicated uh, words that are completely uh, lost for the general public. You can't even translate them. And so how do we get about um, transcending this technical language barrier, this jargon barrier that separates these very exciting discoveries, this very exciting science from a proper understanding and from and prevents people and, and the general public at large to have a dialogue about what those discoveries mean, what, what do they imply, why should we be doing this kind of fundamental science in the first place, which, let's not forget, is funded by taxpayers' money. And so uh, taxpayers have not only an interest and, and, and a great desire to know about those things, but they also have a right to be kept informed and be involved in those discoveries. And so I was... I was, through this extreme experiment, perhaps, I was trying to find a radical way of breaking down those barriers and, and try to uh, bring about a, a genuine two-way communication between science and the professionals, such as myself, and the public at large. I'm interested to hear why, why you think that uh, it is that academics tend to write in such an unclear way. Well, I think we have to distinguish um, academic writing that's done for academics, for other specialists, needs to be precise to the point, and so it uses very specialized terms. It's partially just a question of brevity and partially a question of precision, and so that's uh, that's just the nature of the trade, in a sense. Um, but I think when, when academics speak to the public, there are two different issues. Uh, sometimes they don't realize that they're using jargon, that they are being very specialized, and that they are not communicating clearly because they are so much wrapped into their world and they don't have this connection with the public so they forget what people don't know about their subject and that's one issue and the other issue perhaps is also because by using highly specialized words um, academics are a little bit trying to show off their knowledge perhaps um, unconsciously um, there is a little bit of a uh, anxiety, status anxiety sometimes among academics that by using simpler words or dumbed down what is perceived as dumbed down versions of their science, they're underselling themselves. And I think there's a little bit of anxiety in doing that because some people feel that they are not being proper, that they are selling out what being a proper academic means. And to, to me, that doesn't make any sense. I think, as Einstein used to say, you can't understand your, your science properly unless you can explain it to your grandmother. And I think he's right. And a thousand words is all you need to do that. Crazy stars actually go around the sun, and so does our home world. They do so in a straightforward way, 
which is actually not as crazy as it seemed. It's the marrying of the dances of the crazy stars and our own home world around the sun that makes the crazy stars appear to go around in such a strange way. The three new crazy stars are much harder to see because they're not as bright as the ones the old people knew. To spot them in the sky, you need a far seer, a little brother of big seer. A far seer works in the same way as big seer does, but can only see so far. These new crazy stars were named after some other old gods, the water god, the sky god, and the hell god. If we add our own home world, there are three times three crazy stars going around the sun. A few years ago, it was decided that the hell god is actually too small to be a crazy star like the others. Now it's called a minute crazy star. Let's let's return to your book um, because I, I'm also interested to to know because you were so limited with only a thousand words, what words were left out, or uh, yeah, what what common words were left out that you would have most liked to have used? Definitely energy and speed or velocity were words that I would really have liked to be able to use. Uh, and uh, but, but for all the others, in the end, it didn't really matter because I could work around the limitations of the language. And in fact, it was precisely the limitations of the language that helped me come up with different ways of looking at those very same concepts. And so in a way, I, I'm grateful that those words that I really wanted to use were not in the list because that, that, that is what compelled me to go out and find new eyes, childlike eyes, if you like, to look at those very same concepts and, and express them in, in metaphorical or otherwise uh, different ways that I, I, I think will be surprising to people, to people who know about those concepts. I hope they will be surprising. And people who don't know about those concepts, I hope they will be able to uh, um, make them feel closer to them and give them a, an access point to understand them uh, in a way that uh, otherwise just using standard words would not. Uh, having finished this process and, and uh, you going through this this writing process, how did it affect your own view of cosmology and your discipline? That's that's an interesting question. Uh, really, the, the format itself and the fact that it gave me these new eyes on the universe uh, forced me to rethink some of the ideas that I thought I understood or certainly understood in technical terms, but then what does it mean and how can I express it in, in, a, in a simpler but not simplistic way? And so doing this process was hugely uh, uh, valuable to me because it really forced me to look at my own subject in a different way and to really go down to the very fundamentals of what, what those concepts are about, uh, essentially, and so to, to, to trim away all the unessential detail and just go to the core of the concepts. And that was hugely valuable, even just in terms of understanding them better and, and grasping them properly. Who, uh, who were you writing this book for? I mean, who, who is your intended audience? Well, initially, I think this book was for myself, in a sense, because I, I wrote it um, as an, very much as an experiment. I didn't know when I set out to do this that it would work at all. I didn't know whether the format itself could be stretched to book length. I mean, The Edge of the Sky is not a long book. It's only 96 pages or so, but still, uh, I didn't know to begin with that it would really stretched to that length. And so I, I wrote it, I didn't write it with an audience, with a specific audience in mind, but now looking back at it, I think um, The Edge of the Sky is really a book for, for everybody and anybody who's interested in cosmology and in, in a playful use of language. And I, I like to think of it as a book for children of all ages, in a sense. One uh, 
one of your sentences that, that did make me laugh uh, was when you were talking about Newtonian physics and that for, uh, for Newton, space and time were, were completely separate uh, individual things. And so to illustrate this, you, you wrote, uh, for Mr. Newton, space and time did not talk to each other, never married and lived different lives. Uh, now, um, uh, that, that sentence kind of made me laugh because I guess I'm a bit of a nerd and, and I, I love to listen to lectures about physics and cosmology. So that made me wonder how much background and understanding you do need uh, to be able to access your book. My hope is that you don't need very much at all uh, in that if you know about space-time, for example, this sentence here will read to you in a certain way and you will connect the dots and perhaps fill in the background and you will laugh for for the reason that you might not have heard uh, um, space-time described quite in the same way before. But <laughs> No, I haven't. <laughs> I bet. I'm willing to bet. But if, but if you don't know about space-time, insofar as th- those words make sense to you and, and, you, and, you, and you get the picture and you understand the fundamental difference between, between what Newton said about space and time and, what I, and the way Einstein looked at space-time, that's fine too. Uh, and I think the challenge of this book, and I hope and, and the measure of its success, in, in my opinion, is the fact that it can be read on these two different levels. What I want to do with the book is, is to create engagement and curiosity and stimulate people to think about those things in the first place. I think that's the hardest part. Uh, one thing I did enjoy uh, from your book is it really is a book about the real things that are going on in the, 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 our state of knowledge for the cosmos and uh, for physics. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, the book really starts from uh, from early early times in our knowledge of or the knowledge of the ancient Greeks about the universe, and it really takes the reader through the latest discoveries uh, to the present day and to the outstanding mysteries that are being investigated right now by people such as myself. What is the dark matter made of? What is the dark energy, which is called the dark push in the book, made of? What will the destiny of the universe be? Are there other universes? Uh, and so all of those questions are very much at the forefront of cutting-edge research in cosmology and astrophysics today. Roberto, the, the book itself, it's, I guess, is more of a story than an educational book. So what was important to you about writing the story in this way? Um, the book, as I say, is not an educational book. It's cast as a story. And, and this story follows the adventures of, of a student woman, in fact, a female scientist, a woman scientist, uh, going out to a big telescope, a big seer, for one night of observation from uh, uh, from uh, uh, sunset to sunrise. And so we follow her thoughts and her adventures. And so and, and one thing that, that was important to me, I realized later, was that the main character, one of the two main characters of the book, is a woman, in fact. The second main character is a, is a telescope, in fact, big seer. <laughs> itself but um i think it's very important and it was important to me and it was a very natural choice for choice for me to make the main character of the book a woman uh partially because we need more women in science and and i'm certainly certainly i'm very keen to uh, support um any effort that can be made to infuse more young women for science for physics for astrophysics um we see the numbers of women in science decline steadily after graduation and and in in the ranks of seniority between among academics i think that's something that needs to be improved on and if the book by portraying a, a female scientist as as its main character can help in infusing a younger generation of women for science, I think that would be something that would be very, very close to my heart, something I would be very happy to see. 
Roberto, uh, thanks a lot for uh, both for taking on the challenge of writing this book and, and taking uh, some time out of your morning to uh, have a chat with me about it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Craig. You have been listening to Dr. Roberto Trotter. He is a senior lecturer in astrophysics at Imperial College London and author of the book, The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is. And my name is Craig Barfoot, so thanks a lot for listening. Ciao.